By his own admission, Stormers coach John Dobson is neither highly technical nor a career coach. If he's neither of these two things, then what is he? A communications specialist? A proud South African? A regular guy who believes that rugby can help heal wounds and unite a fragmented Cape and national community? Ahead of this weekend's United Rugby Championship final against Munster, Dobson tried to answer that question and gave us a privileged peek into Dobbo's world. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. John Dobson, the Stormers coach, is a communications specialist. He has to be. His players are drawn from both what he calls the blue-chip schools and abject poverty, so finding a language that reaches them all is as delicate as telling somebody something you know they don't want to hear. Sometimes he's discovered images are better than words. Images are more inclusive, more widely shared, more immediate. So, for example, the Stormers play a game in which they circulate an image of a car on their smartphones. The car comes with a description, in this case, a high-mileage VW Polo, and the trick is to link the car to a Stormers player. This is great fun, as you can imagine. Does the high-mileage Polo belong, perhaps, to Marvin Ori, whose pimped-up metallic blue beamer is at the panel beater for the week? Maybe it does. But maybe it belongs to Marnie Lubbock, who has decided that his sporty red Alfa Romeo Giulia is too high maintenance to drive to practice in and is looking for something more dependable, something in which he also won't be stopped at every traffic light by Stormers fans who want to roll down the window and fluke and chaff. Could the polo be Dan Duplessis's? Dan's concerned about the environment and the polo is remarkably fuel efficient. He can get to the local supermarket in it and not be recognised. That means he won't spend more time posing for selfies than he will looking for almond milk. The polo simply must be Dan's drive. The correct answer, however, is none of the above, according to Dobson. The correct answer is that the high-mileage stolen VW polo belongs to Dion Faree. Dion is 36, so he's high-mileage. He's also a stealing flank, famous for his grinding work on the floor. So, stolen in the metaphorical sense is important here. And Dion's a battered, rocky kind of guy, full of blood and bruises. He's not flash, say, like Clayton Blomicky's, with his painted nails, increasingly outlandish hairstyles and bright purple Mustang. No, Dion's saving his pennies. He knows his body can't take much more of a battering, and he's not going to waste his money on flash and frippery. Dion is the polo. The polo is Dion. The player with the correct answer might also surprise you. It was, says Dobson, Damien Willemser. The springbok isn't only the quickest pair of feet in the strand, great on the counter and great in the offload, but he has a first-class rugby brain. Grizzly Dion laughed out loud when Damien got the answer right, and the rest of the side laughed a little bit too. Dobson's long wrestle with communication takes many forms. He often sees two Stormers players sitting in the bus, let's say France Malherba and Hachiva Diamani, by way of an example, one in front of the other, 
and notices that they don't actually talk to one another. If they don't talk to each other in any standard definition of the term, how does he talk to them? Is it a problem? Does he need to be worried? He's come to realize that he doesn't because they're digital natives, so they talk on WhatsApp all the time, messaging each other as if their lives depended on it, in fact. And as the Bradarsdorp-born Malherba and the squatter camp-born Diamani have become really good mates anyway, Dobson has become aware that he doesn't need to be too concerned because they're talking in a way that's comfortable for them, although they're sitting less than a metre away from each other in the team bus. A gentle tap on the shoulder might do it for someone of Dobson's generation, but that's not necessarily how his players go about it. WhatsApp and social media generally, then, has become a communication tool for Dobson. Because the players use it, he uses it and other things besides. He's not going to fall into the old-fashioned trap of lecturing them, wagging his finger and waving his arms about, occasionally modulating his voice for effect with a cheesy joke or two thrown in. That's not his style. And it's a waste of time anyway, because they're going to stop concentrating. We can be accurate about that phrase, a waste of time. That time is 14 minutes long, says Dobson, no more. After that, they glaze over and start thinking about who is messaging them and who they might need to message back. In a very real sense, Dobson's time with his squad, his messaging if you like, needs to be carefully plotted because it involves a race against time. Dobson has become a communications specialist. Dobson continued the visual theme on Monday this week, when preparations for the URC final against Munster began in earnest with what he calls a lift-off meeting. The players had been off from Wednesday afternoon last week, when the forwards celebrated with a braai, while the backs behaved very much like backs, and went to a trendy restaurant ordering hors d'oeuvres they couldn't always pronounce the names of. Dobson wasn't involved, but it did get back to him that the forwards, who are usually abstemious to a fault, kicked back with a couple of beers. Quote, it means that they were relaxed and in a good space, he says. I like that. Dobson thought he'd give Liftoff a big boost when he coined the idea of the final being the, quote, last dogfight, an appropriate tagline for a muscle-up against the hard men of Munster, to whom the Stormers have now lost twice in two seasons. Dobson tweaked a poster from Tom Cruise's Top Gun as a vehicle for making some points about being always connected and lightning fast, and might even have shown the players a clip or two from the film, he wasn't exactly sure when we spoke, just to get their pulses racing. Quote, we know how dangerous Munster are, he says. We know all about Connor Murray's box-kicking game, and we know that if they get into your 22, their conversion rates are stratospherically good, so we are wary of Munster, he says. There's unfinished business between the Stormers and Munster. When they met in Limerick at the beginning of last season, Munster beat them 34-18. The Stormers were without their Springboks and Munster had Peter Armani, Keith Earls and R.G. Snayman, who came off the bench to score a late try. It was a rude awakening, says Dobson. Quote, Toman Park in Limerick was a cathedral, a crazy place. We realized we couldn't outgrind these guys so we didn't try, but we still lost. Afterwards, I felt like a skunk. As well as the final being the Stormers' most important match of the season, it doubles as Stephen Kutsoff's swan song. 
After the final, he won't play for the Blue and White Hoops for two years because at the end of the World Cup, he's off to Ulster for an astronomical sum of euros. Although, to put it in context, it's probably the kind of money that Man City's Jack Grealish would look down his nose at. Given that this is the long-serving Kitsov's last match, Dobbo prepared a poster to celebrate his tenure at the Stormers as part of Monday's lift-off meeting. It says, quote, Kitsy, last blood, and it has Kitsy's face dominating the poster in a way that Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa character dominates the Rocky posters. When he sees it for the first time, Kitsy will grin in a slightly sheepish way and, for a fleeting second or two, the guys might just get sentimental, although, being guys, no sooner will they get sentimental than they'll be embarrassed and try to claw it back in some beyond embarrassing and crude kind of way. But if the guys don't get sentimental, Dobbo might just get sentimental himself. Dobbo loves Kitsy. He says he's irreplaceable. It's just a case of keeping his seat warm until he gets back from the Kingspan Stadium so he can resume shedding more blood after he shed the last drop of blood in Last Blood. All this sturm und drang, blood and speed, all this unapologetic iconography of modern manhood makes Dobson look more macho than he really is. As well as searching for an appropriate language in which to talk to his players, whether this be in images or in words, Dobson spends an awful lot of time thinking about something far softer, which is belonging. For Dobson, belonging is about making the players comfortable without allowing them to become complacent. If they feel they belong, he says, they're able to give of their best selves, rather than worrying about what the future may hold or where they're standing in the pecking order. Quote, if you don't belong, says Dobson, you're anxious. You don't know where you stand in the ranks. If you do belong, if you've been made to feel comfortable, you have the good drugs and not the bad drugs running through your system. Belonging has become something of a crusade for Dobson, as well as crossing the floor and playing for Dickie Dyers' Northern's Avonwood in Elsie's River in the late 1980s, Dobson later began to read every book ever published on not only the South African transition to democracy, but the transition to democracy in what became Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe. Reading such books left him with the impression that white South Africans underappreciate the miracle that was the coming of democracy as they underappreciate how much more bloody and brutal the arrival of democracy might have been for them. Quote, we, the whites in other words, got away with murder, he says. We really did. That recognition requires some kind of moral redress. Basically put, that redress involves bringing the Cape and the country together through rugby. It involves being sensitive to the community and the meaningfulness today's final has to the less privileged people in the Cape. Tickets for the final were sold out within hours of going on sale, and Dobson is aware that the final has caught the imagination in a way that last year's final against the Bulls simply didn't. Stories are legend about folk walking to work, so saving on taxi fare and buying a ticket to the final with those savings. The sacrifices that have been made in order to watch the final have been profound. Dobson and his team know how important the Stormers are to the community to which they belong, and belongs to them. B for belonging is the final pillar in what Dobson calls FMB, with the F standing for fun and the M standing for meaning. 
The fun comes in with linking Dion Fury to the polo, while meaning has to do with keeping the cape smiling, not only by playing winning rugby, but by playing attractive rugby, the kind of rugby that the fans will remember for years to come. Allied to the three FMB pillars, Dobson keeps a running Where Are They document in which he tracks all 55 players, that includes Stormers and Western Province players, as well as those on the fringes, on a scale of red, orange, green, to denote their state of mind, their confidence levels and their attitude. In this regard, he mentions a player who recently absconded. At first, Dobson wasn't best pleased and the player shifted onto red. But when he found out that thugs had got to the player's mother and were extorting her because they realised she was suddenly receiving good money from her rugby-playing son in distant Cape Town, he was more forgiving and throttled things back to orange on the scale. Of these 55 players, Dobson says that 23 are playing, quote, black tax. The tax successful black South Africans are obliged to pay to those less fortunate family members for those who aren't familiar with the phrase. Except that Dobson uses the phrase generically rather than racially, in that white players in his expanded squad are playing black tax too. You wouldn't guess it, because some of these players are pretty high profile, but they too have their burdens with mouths to feed and aging parents to take care of. The appearance and the reality are often further apart than we think. When asked if there isn't a part of him which would dearly love to coach a successful rugby team and not have to worry about the social and political backdrop against which the final is played, Dobson concedes the point. Quote, it can be tiring, he says in a voice that betrays no immediate sign of tiring, to honour our mission to keep Cape Town smiling. Being an evangelist for happiness isn't the only pressure Dobson feels. He feels the pressure of expectation, of course, but what he really hates is the imperative which demands he be ruthless. At some point in the weekly cycle, he has to show ruthlessness when culling, when telling a player he hasn't even made it to the bench, let alone the starting 15. He says the players have told him that they like it when he tells it straight, but there's a way in which he tells this story that leads you to believe he might not completely believe them. Excessive challenges lead inexorably to mistakes. So what of his mistakes? He says he realises in retrospect that there were times this season when he was spread too thin because he tried to do too much. It's best, he says, to leave his phone in the office and be present all the time at practice. The players are keenly aware if he's present in body but not in spirit and involving himself in equity issues and boardroom kerfuffles did no one any good this season, including him. At least, though, they've got through to another final. For some of this season past, he was petrified that the Stormers were like that other side in blue, another Leicester City. All of this talk of images and words, blood and belonging, is ironic because Dobson harbours under the persistent misapprehension that he's not the real deal. Quote, Strange thing is that I don't really see myself as a full-time professional coach, he says in the same way that I don't really see myself as an excessively technical coach. I love living in Cape Town. I love coaching in this community with its very specific rugby DNA. I like the idea of fans sacrificing things so they can fork out 300 rand for a ticket to watch the final. 
That's what makes it really worthwhile for me. This is rugby country. It's different here. If the Bishops' first 11 lose to Paul Ruiz in a cricket fixture, it's just one of those things. If they lose to Paul Ruiz in a first 15 rugby fixture, the old boys get involved. There are questions. There's a fundraiser. It's completely different. Win or lose in the final, and fears of comparisons with Leicester City notwithstanding, does he think that the decision to join the North was the correct one? Quote, I love the URC because everything's a contest, he says. What's happened to rugby in New Zealand now is that it's become a bit like basketball. Look, the Crusaders can put 60 points on you in an afternoon if they're fizzing in Christchurch, but they're hardly even putting the ball into the scrum anymore, are they? In this competition, it's all up for grabs. That's what I really like about it. The mall, the breakdown, the scrum, every facet of the game. I think it's been a major boost for South African rugby. I think the decision has been completely vindicated. The Irish and the South African games have become intertwined as a result of the United Rugby Championship, but the cross-pollination predates that. Think of Rassi Erasmus and his short-lived Munster days. Think of Johan van Graan and his five slightly iffy years in charge. Think of Snayman and think of Damien Dialendi too. The apple green of Ireland and the dark green of the Springboks have never been closer on the rugby rainbow. Over a lazy weekend in Limerick in 2017, I discussed Rassi and Van Kran with my Munster supporting Irish friends, John McGraw and Mark Connolly. Mark, if I remember correctly, had huge respect for Rassi's rugby brain, but wasn't sure that he dealt with his departure from Munster with the requisite dignity. At that stage, Van Kran only trailed questions in his wake, like a platoon of grubby soldiers. What could I tell them? None of us were quite sure. Later that same weekend, Mark got behind the wheel of his big car and drove me up to Killaloe outside of Limerick, the small town in which Munster legend Anthony Foley had his funeral the year before. We looked at St. Flannan's church and respectfully walked the cobble streets as Mark talked with emotion about the day Foley was put to rest. Mark explained that the community had come out in their hundreds, if not thousands, to say goodbye to a Munster man who had inexplicably died of a heart attack in a Paris hotel room shortly before the team were due to play Racing 92. Later we watched a documentary about Foley, and in it there appeared a reminder of Munster's famous Heineken Cup victory over Biarritz, in 2006, in which Foley was skipper. It led me to believe that for all of the passion involved with the Stormers in the Cape, there is similar passion for Munster in Munster. Finally, there is no way to weigh passion, as there is no way to quantify what rugby achieves in terms of social cohesion. This might be Irish rugby's year, finally, what with the World Cup there for the taking by any one of three or four sides. Munster might start the trend after Leinster's defeat by La Rochelle last weekend, but I hope in my heart that they do not. When I think of the sweaty, occasionally bloody fabric of Irish rugby, I can only shudder with respect. That weekend in Limerick, driving through the bounteous green lanes helped deepen that respect. We lunched behind the heavy blue water of Loch Derg, and again talk turned to rugby, to the legends of Munster, to their grim and slightly self-conscious provincial dislike of Leinster, 
to the great games, think of the win against the All Blacks in 79 and the ones that got away. As for me, I love the names of Irish rugby. Gary Owen, Presentation Brothers College, Peter O'Mani's side, Connacht and Ulster. I think of the players, Willie John McBride, Brian O'Driscoll, Paul O'Connell, the careless bounty of all those rolling O's. Again, I can only shudder with respect. I also laugh lightly when I remember the mischievous Keith Wood and his love of Leonard Cohen. He, remember, was nicknamed the Raging Potato, and like O'Mani and Axel Foley, was a monster man down to his bootlaces and the renegade twinkle in his eye. Wood was born in Killaloe, the very town in which Foley was laid to rest. When it comes to Irish rugby, I think not only of the names and club names, but of the stadiums. I'm not thinking here of the national stadiums in the big cities, but rather of those rickety fellows in the windswept provinces, like, say, in Galway, where it always seems to be raining, and rugby for a fan becomes more a sodden obligation than it does an exercise in free will. I think of all these things as I write this, of these things and more, and I hope that my Munster mates appreciate the nod in their direction, as my thank you for the wonderful time spent in Limerick and surrounds. I also know that they will forgive me for saying that I hope Dobson and his men prevail in the final this weekend. Truth to tell, Dobson and I have been circling around each other for months, looking for a time to talk here and hoping to squeeze me into his hectic schedule there. Finally, we spoke for two hours in Musenberg ten days ago, me over a cappuccino, he over a chai latte, and we could have talked for double that time. Dobson bubbles. He bubbles constantly with anecdotes, with theories, with perceptions and enthusiasms. He also bubbles with dread and anxiety, although he doesn't do this very often. So strong does the anxiety become that on about 65 minutes, sometimes a little later, he leaves the coach's booth and picks his way to the dressing room. Once there, he finds a seat close to a shower. He turns the shower on full blast and returns to his seat, hopeful that the jets of water will drown out the roar of wild noise in the cauldron above him. He sits in the comforting noise of the shower for as long as he dares, because he knows that the clock is winding down and he must make an appearance for himself, his coaching staff, for his team and the viewers back home. He stands up and turns off the water and returns to where he should be. He says that it's a demonstration that he isn't as good a coach as he should be because he should be shouting instructions, giving the impression of doing something when there is nothing to be done. I listened to Dobson carefully. I weighed up his words and considered their merits. I know in my heart of hearts that this last bit simply isn't true. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. South African Standard Time.